Well, let's, uh, let's go to God's Word. We continue our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll labor to uh, cover the main points of the whole chapter, and then Mr. Kirby Key will take us back uh, to chapter 9 in the following week. Chapter 8 today, starting in verse 1, we'll read the scripture and we'll consider its meaning. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness in your abundance, at the present time, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, But being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother, who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof 
before the churches of your love and of your boasting about you to these men. Amen. It's a long chapter, but the the, the point is pretty straightforward. Paul is writing uh, to the church in Corinth uh, to exhort them uh, to be generous in a gift that is being taken up uh, for the relief of the saints uh, in Jerusalem. I'll leave the details of why that gift was being taken up to the express uh, uh, exhortation that comes later in chapter 9. Kirby will take that up next week. But I want to look at some of the circumstances and how Paul lays forth his argument. What are the motivations for why they should do this? That's really what Paul is dealing with in chapter 8. He begins with these words, we want you to know, brothers. It's a a prefatory comment uh, emphasizing what is to come. Uh, He's addressing uh, the Corinthian church uh, along with his apostolic associates to the Christian brothers in Corinth, uh, and they emphasize what follows uh, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, I don't know how your ancient geography is. Macedonia is a province at this point of Rome, uh, but geographically it's northern Greece. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, And Paul says that there's a a grace of God that has been given among the churches there. Now, what what churches are those? That's almost certainly the church in Philippi, uh, the church uh, of the Thessalonians, as well as the church in Berea. There may be others, but there is sort of a a, a forming proto-presbytery in uh, Macedonia, a collection of churches that Paul uh, brings up here as an example uh, to the Corinthians. Uh, It's the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Grace, obviously, we we hear this word a lot. It's a word that generally we think of as being sort of unmerited favor, but more generally it means gift. It's something good that uh, is given to somebody, and here we are told it's the grace of God. That is to say that the the gift to which Paul is referring here uh, is something that God has given uh, to the churches in Macedonia. Uh, The implied agent here who's actually doing it's all passive here the grace of God that has been given uh, but it's really pointing us to a divine agent that is God himself has given this gift of himself to the churches in Macedonia Uh, that's uh, what Paul is talking about here Uh, we'll get into a minute what that exact gift is what is this grace itself but I want you to begin by noticing where it comes from Uh, Everything that Paul is going to address here begins with a divine action. It's God himself who who works everything uh, that we're going to talk about in the hearts of his people. It's not something they mustered up of their own strength or willpower or self-discipline. The things which we're going to be discussing this morning are ultimately, primarily, the first cause of them. The the divine agent is God. Uh, It's not just uh, their own inherent goodness as the churches in Macedonia. He says, For in a severe test of affliction there, that is the churches in Macedonia, their abundance uh, of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And so we have kind of a stark contrast here, right? You, you have this, this idea of affliction and uh, of poverty uh, conversely connected with this idea of abundance of joy and generosity. Those things don't tend to go together, do they? Uh, But in Paul's uh, comment, they do, and I want us to understand how they're related. Paul describes the the grace mentioned in the previous verse, 
and before we look at the grace itself, uh, we need to consider the circumstances in which this grace is mentioned. Uh, namely, it's in a severe test of affliction. Uh, contextually here, affliction, uh, thinking to your knowledge of the gospel, uh, uh, or the, really the book of Acts, uh, and the circumstances of the, the church in Philippi and the Thessalonians, uh, what might this affliction be a reference to? Any thoughts? That's not an easy Jesus answer, is it? <laughs> it's a, a question that really tests our, our understanding of the Scripture. Uh, Paul planted these churches, you'll remember, uh, about halfway through the book of Acts. We get to Paul's ministry, and right around the halfway point of that is uh, his work uh, in Philippi uh, and elsewhere in that region. And you'll remember that Paul is being chased out of cities, He's been uh, being uh, caught up in mobs. He's been arrested and thrown into prison. And you'll remember who who was really inciting all of that violence. It was the Jewish people. The the Jewish people were upset about Paul's ministry. It says uh, in some places they were uh, jealous. uh, And uh, they had a variety of reasons, I'm sure, uh, to do this. uh, But they're directly persecuting Paul, and they're also stirring up pagan peoples, uh, the mobs in those cities, uh, to cause problems. Uh, If there's a a riot, then the Romans get involved, and that'll get Paul in even more trouble. And so that's sort of their modus operandi, is to to create a scene in which Paul will then become the the, the scapegoat, and he will suffer uh, problems at the hands of the Romans uh, for that reason. Uh, If that sounds familiar, it's because it's exactly what the Jews did to Jesus. But that's what's continuing to go on in the life of these churches uh, in uh, Philippi and in uh, Thessalonica. uh, There was persecution ongoing. Uh, That's what Paul is almost certainly referring to uh, in terms of the affliction here. It's definite. uh, You might as well read it as persecution at the hands of the Jewish people uh, and perhaps at the instrumentality of the Roman government there. And it's described as being severe. This wasn't light persecution. Um, Some places experienced economic hardship as they were forced out of trade guilds and that sort of thing. They weren't able to do their jobs, be employed meaningfully, and so they suffered persecution in the form of economic loss. Uh, But this is severe uh, affliction, uh, Paul uh, says, and so we we should not understand it strictly as economic persecution. Probably it was more uh, than that. Wicked men and mobs uh, drive Paul and his associates into prisons and from their cities, and they uh, do so as well to uh, the local church after he leaves. Uh, But what I want to highlight here before we move on is how else this is described. It's called affliction, uh, but that's really a modifier. Uh, It's describing something else. What is this primarily that the church in Corinth or the churches in Macedonia uh, have been experiencing. It's a something of affliction. Trial. A trial. All right, trial. So primarily what it is is a trial. It is affliction. It is persecution. But that's descriptive of what is really going on there, uh, namely that it is a trial. Now, if it's a trial, uh, a trial has intentionality behind it, and it has purpose behind it, right? What is the purpose of a trial? To find out the truth, to see what uh, you're really made of, uh, 
did lots of trials of various kinds in the military. You had to run a certain pace. You had to climb over a certain sized wall. Uh, you had to do a variety of things. They were trials to make sure you knew your uh, your, your, your soldier skills, right? And uh, we have in uh, colleges and universities trials of all sorts of kinds. You have uh, tests and exams and these sorts of things, and they are, they're meant to evaluate uh, what's really inside of you. And so we have here a trial, and the Scripture speaks of trials in various places, but in general the idea is that God is the one who's issuing the trial. And he may use human instruments in the process, but behind the trial foundationally is God himself, and what he's looking for uh, is genuineness. Uh, Genuineness of what? Well, faith usually is uh, what he's looking for here. And so that's what we have here. It's a severe test of affliction, uh, and we read into that, well, out of it, but by implication, uh, this is a test of affliction given by God. It's not just that the church is being persecuted. God is putting them into a circumstance in which they are persecuted, Uh, Why? Well, so that they would be proved genuine. Test refers to uh, the quality of or character of someone or something, whether it is genuine. The Corinthians, of course, they they pass with flying colors. Uh, We see in the, or the Macedonians, they they pass with flying colors uh, because here we're told, uh, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul's saying the Macedonian church was being tested. The way in which they were being tested was by persecution, uh, by consequence that's suffering, that's poverty, uh, and God's behind that all. And yet what was their, their, their conduct even in those circumstances? It was uh, joy, first off. And secondly, it was a wealth of generosity on their part. And so the trial then really is a crucible uh, that is uh, here in mind. And the, uh, that's the circumstance of God's gift, uh, his grace. It's not a good thing. I think it's important. We're thinking about God's providence, his sovereignty, superintending all things, even trials of various kinds in our lives. It's good for us to remember that God is behind them. Uh, but we also need to remember that even though he is working good ends, that doesn't make the things themselves good, right? Uh, there was nothing inherently good about suffering, uh, persecution. There was nothing inherently good about their, their uh, deprivation of material goods. Uh, but what makes it good, uh, what makes it uh, good is, is that God is ordering it to a good end. Uh, and here the good end is the proven genuineness, the evidence uh, that becomes manifest uh, as they exercise joy and generosity uh, in this context. And so that's, that's really the grace that Paul has in mind as we're looking at this passage. It's the grace of joy, and especially here the grace of generosity. Paul labors uh, to describe uh, such grace in continued contrast to what we might have expected in the Macedonian church. Uh, they endured severe affliction. What happens when you ordinarily, humanly speaking, in, endure severe affliction? What is our natural disposition in such circumstances? Poor me. Woe is me. I heard something over here. Why me? It's <laughs> a good question to ask sometimes. Um, yeah, our, our normal disposition under uh, severe trials uh, doesn't really matter what they are, but when things aren't going well for us, our normal disposition is to, to become despondent, frustrated, uh, perhaps even angry, 
Certainly we don't think of joy as being the natural fruit of such a condition of circumstances. They endured severe affliction, yet they were not despondent. Uh, persecution inevitably uh, resulted in extreme poverty, uh, and yet we're reading here that they overflowed, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Uh, just heaping on words to describe the superabundance uh, of what they have. Uh, joy is not what we expect in persecution. Uh, neither is generosity what we, what we expect in times of poverty. When we think of being poor in our own situations materially, what is our tendency uh, with our finances? We tighten up. We, we clench the fist. We hold back what we have uh, out of concern for what the future may hold. Uh, we become stingy and anxious about money. And Paul says here uh, that the exact opposite was the case uh, with the Macedonians. And, and so in this way, I really think what Paul's doing here is he's emphasizing the supernatural character of this grace. This isn't ordinary joy. It's not ordinary generosity. Because ordinarily, uh, we are joyful when things are going well, and we are generous when we have a lot to share at best. And yet here we have opposite circumstances. Divine grace, the spiritual gift which comes from God, it defies our ordinary expectations. We ask the question, how can persecution and poverty be conducive to joy and generosity? Humanly speaking, it's impossible. It's really a paradox here. What is the, the, the key to solving this paradox? Uh, the key is grace. It's recognizing that this is supernatural, divine grace. God working in the hearts of his people uh, to give them joy and to make them generous, even when all circumstances would lead to the opposite uh, situation. It's by the gift of grace that Christians are able to abound uh, in these ways and in these circumstances. Uh, but lest we make the mistake of thinking this joy and generosity is merely spiritual, it'd be possible, it'd be a bad reading of the text, but it would be possible uh, to think of these sort of generically. You know, they're, they're joyful in a generic way, they're generous in a generic way, um, perhaps in a spiritual way. But Paul, Paul's going to make very clear, he's talking about material things. It's good to think of spiritual things, especially as we're reading the scripture. Oftentimes there are spiritual things being talked about here, but Paul's very definitely talking about material things here. It says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And so these are real monetary gifts. He's not talking about uh, thoughts and prayers, right? Nothing wrong with thoughts and prayers, especially not prayers. We should pray for people uh, when they're in need. Uh, but Paul's very clearly talking about cold, hard currency, uh, coins, gold coins, silver coins, uh, real money. And he's doing so, he's highlighting the Macedonian gift uh, the, as an example to the Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthians and he's telling them about this, this superabundant generosity uh, that these other churches had. Later in chapter 9, he's going to make a direct appeal to the Corinthians, uh, but Paul already is doing what you might call, uh, I don't really like the term because it implies maybe some negative uh, motives. Paul's not uh, guilty of that here, but he's sort of greasing the wheels, isn't he? Uh, he's, he's trying to get to a certain end. He wants them to give, and he has reasons for wanting them to give. 
And so rather than giving, him a, a giving the Corinthians a direct order, a, a command, an imperative, uh, he sets before them an example. Uh, and the example that he sets before them is the Macedonian church. Uh, he wants the Corinthians to know that despite the Macedonian poverty and persecution, uh, they gave proportionally, generously, and with an eager willingness. That's what giving ought to look like, uh, according to the Apostle Paul and the example of the Macedonians. It's proportional, it's generous, and it's with eager willingness. Proportionally, they gave according to their means, that is, their material means. Those who had much gave much, those who had little uh, gave less. Uh, But more than just being proportional, it was generous. Uh, Being generally poor, Paul highlights their relatively meager resources they had access to. Uh, We know probably this wasn't a a, a very large gift in the grand scheme of things, but it was certainly a lot more than Paul expected. Uh, You know, we we see the generosity not in the the size of the gift, uh, but in the relative proportion to what they had, right? Uh, That's what Paul's highlighting here. Uh, Being poor, their means were meager, uh, and yet they gave more than was expected. It exceeded their means, uh, we read. Uh, but most importantly, I want to highlight here the eager willingness. That's sort of the, the, the manner of their giving, right? We have the, the actual general idea of their amount, right? The, 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 the gift itself, but especially the manner of their givings highlighted here. It was willing. They begged earnestly, uh, we read, for the favor of taking part. Now, when you beg earnestly for the favor of doing something, you really want to be a part of it. Uh, it, it does not give us the impression of somebody sort of doesn't really want to give but knows they're kind of supposed to and so you know they, they, they give a little bit and kind of drag their legs in giving and they, they, they try to get out of it if they can. No, that's not the impression we're given. If anything, the impression we're given is that Paul was concerned that they were giving too much, uh, that they were giving beyond uh, their means. Paul Paul might even be said to have, uh, you know, holding them back. Maybe you guys should slow down for a minute. Be, a, be a, you know, be a, be a little less generous might be good. Uh, that's the impression we're kind of left here. But they're, they're begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So I wonder if that describes the, the way we think about giving. Is it, is it generous? Is it proportional? Uh, is it with an eager willingness that we don't want to be left out of the opportunity to be a part of this? Because that's how Paul... Uh, describes uh, this giving. And the Macedonian churches didn't want to be excluded from participating in the ministry on account of their hardships. People might have made excuses. Oh, they're persecuted. Oh, they're poor. We shouldn't expect much from them. Certainly we shouldn't expect much from them. And yet they were generous. They didn't seek to use their circumstances to be an excuse to not to give. Uh, Rather, they begged for the favor uh, of taking part. And again, I I want to circle back and remind us, this is all of the grace of God. This isn't a natural disposition. It's not something that they inherently were like, just, you know, kind of naturally generous in their culture or something like that. No, uh, this is the grace of God. It's God working in them uh, this good. And we should likewise pray, I think, by way of application, that God would work this good in us. Uh, Proportional, generous, willing gifts as the Macedonians gave 
uh, much like the casting of the widow's mite, another famous story uh, of similar uh, effect. It's evidence, we're told, of God's grace operating in the life of a believer. That's why Paul brings up the example of the Macedonian church. So this is Their generosity is an evidence uh, of true spirituality, that they really know God, that they've really believed in Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit is really working in their life is, is demonstrated in a, a tangible, visible way by their eager willingness to give proportionally and generously of their material wealth. That is what Paul is getting at here. And we should ask ourselves, is this sort of evidence the kind of evidence we have? I want to be very clear here. Writing a big check to the church doesn't save you. Uh, you, you can't buy your way into heaven. Uh, this is not the cause of anybody's salvation. Uh, and it's not really the size of the check that ultimately matters. But Paul is being very clear here that this is an evidence. This is something that demonstrates true spirituality is a proportional, generous, willing gift. It's evidence of saving grace in our life. Going on, Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Sorry, that's the previous section. We'll go on the next page, not rehash the the previous page. Paul writes, And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God uh, to us. And so Paul surprised by the amount that's given relative to their material means, given that they were persecuted and poor. Um, But when he takes stock and considers uh, their situation, it actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to who? To the Lord. Uh, It's because uh, they gave themselves to the Lord first that they then in turn gave so generously of themselves uh, to the apostles and to this, this need that was being raised up. It's a demonstration of the importance of right priorities in this life. The thing that causes us to be stingy, uh, to be tight-fisted, to not be generous and proportional and willing in our giving uh, is because we've not given ourselves first to the Lord. Uh, And that is not what we see with the Macedonians. Uh, They gave themselves first to the Lord, And that means, by implication, what did they not give themselves first to? Themselves. Themselves. It means that their first priority was not themselves, uh, their own uh, pleasure, their own comfort, their own um, kind of profits, uh, possessions, power, the things that we want in this life, the things we work really hard to get. Uh, Sure, they had them in some measure, and they wanted more of them probably, uh, as most people do, they expect that when they work, they get a wage, right? Uh, they, they labor hard and they hope to achieve some position. We've seen some of that being discussed earlier in Paul's letters. Uh, but primarily, what is their, their first and, and main and chief priority? It's the Lord himself, to give themselves to the Lord and not to themselves or to the world or the things of this world. And it was then, we read, the will of God for them to give themselves to the apostles and to this charitable work. And so what's driving them is not generosity or a desire to be known as the big giving church. Uh, certainly they would never be that, being their, given their circumstances. But what's driving them to give is this foundational 
giving of themselves to the Lord, and then therefore a, a desire to please God. And so what should motivate us in our giving? It's not that, you know, none of the pastors here have any clue what anybody gives. I, I hope you realize that. It goes to a bookkeeper and the deacons and they handle it. Uh, but the, 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 the thing that motivates uh, the people of God in their giving, uh, in the case of the Macedonians, and I think is an example to us, is not that we would have some standing in the church, you know, give a, a big check so that we can get a plaque or a, a building named after us and have some worldly honor. No, that's not the motivation at all. The motivation is a commitment of our whole lives to God and a submission to his will. And the result of that, the fruit of that self-sacrificial living is that we will be generous to others. That's what we see with the Macedonian church. It's what Paul wants from them and from the Corinthians and what God ultimately wants from all of his people is to give ourselves to him and submit to his will such that we are not stingy, not tight-fisted, but that we give generously, proportionally, willingly, eagerly begging for the privilege of participating in the work of God and his church. The Macedonian churches had been generous on their part. And that word on their part is a little bit ominous if you're following where Paul is going because it implies that there's another part left, right? Uh, On their part, they have been generous. Now what about you, the Corinthians? That's where he's going. Uh, The work's not complete, and that's why he says we, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And so you see he started getting more and more direct in his exhortation and expectations of the Corinthian church. He he set before them the Macedonian example, and now he's uh, exhorting them uh, to uh, excel in this same way, namely that they would be generous. Uh, Paul is now directing or addressing the Corinthians directly. Having lifted up the generosity of the Macedonian gift, he exhorts the Corinthians to excel in this act of grace, uh, to give generously. Um, but notice Paul continues to maintain the, the supernatural character of this work. How does he describe it? It's an act of grace. He's not just saying, you know, see their good example, do likewise. He is doing that, but with an understanding that it's God who worked in the Macedonians and that that God is the same God that they have believed in and is working in them. And so he expects similar fruit from these churches, not necessarily the same sized gift. He actually probably expects that the Corinthians will give much more uh, because they are, uh, by comparison, uh, much more wealthy as a congregation. And so it's not the, the, the equality of the gift, so to speak, uh, but it is this understanding that there will be a generosity from the Corinthians Because the same Holy Spirit that is operative in the lives of the Christians in Macedonia is likewise operative in the life of the Corinthians. That's a good vote of confidence from the apostle to the Corinthians for all their problems. He still believed that God was working in them uh, this grace. And he expects it uh, to bear fruit in actual action. Uh, This is why Paul feels no need, I think, to resort to heavy-handed tactics. You know, there's a whole racket out there, uh, sort of the generosity industry, right? Everybody's trying to get after major donors and big gifts, and they've got all sorts of slick marketing and, you know, uh, think tanks and, uh, 
uh, people who are in that industry who are very good at getting you to write very big checks. And, and Paul's not even willing to use his apostolic authority to make a, a heavy-handed command. He could have spoken in a direct imperative. There would have been nothing wrong with him doing so. But it would ruin something of the purpose of him desiring this, right? Because what's, what's one important aspect of this gift as an evidence? It's that it is willingly given, right? And so if Paul comes down with a direct command, then they are deprived of the opportunity of doing it in a very, you know, willing way. And so it might be seen as, well, that's the apostle, we have to, so we will. By exhorting them uh, to do so without a command, which he specifically says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love is also genuine, Paul wants to give them the opportunity to do this very willingly uh, from themselves. Paul's not afraid of imperatives. Uh, His letters are full of commands, uh, but to use a command here would destroy his purposes, which is to prove by the earnestness of others that the love you have is also genuine. In other words, just as a generous gift from the Macedonians evidenced the reality of God's grace, and Paul holds up their gift as an example to the Corinthian church, Uh, because he longs to see the same evidence in the Corinthian church, Uh, the apostle intends to try their faith. It's a trial, just like the Macedonians were under trial. Paul is now putting the Corinthians under trial, uh, trying their faith. What is the standard of this trial? It's by their love uh, for the apostle Paul, for others. This is the trial uh, that he puts before them. Will they give generously, proportionally, generously, willingly, That would be a great evidence for the Corinthian church. They are spiritually alive. And Paul desires that they have that evidence, uh, not just for others to see, but especially that they themselves would have assurance of their own spiritual condition. Uh, The scripture is very clear. Uh, You think of the the letters to the, uh, uh, John's letters to the the elect lady in the church, the epistles of John, how many tests of faith there are, the, the doctrinal test, do you believe the right things, uh, the, the, uh, the test of, of love, do you love the brethren. Uh, we are given in Scripture tests so that we might bear evidence so that others may know, but especially so that we would have assurance of our salvation. Paul desires the Corinthians to have that assurance, and so he provides them an opportunity uh, to generously give in this way. I want to highlight the uh, stark differences between the church in Macedonia and that of Corinth. Uh, I've mentioned before, Macedonia, it's, it's poor and it's persecuted. Now, uh, thinking about the church of Corinth, and I've alluded to this to some degree, what is the circumstance in Corinth? What characterizes their church? Wealth. Wealth. Corinth is a, a major industrial trade city. I think our brother Kirby at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians did a, a wonderful introduction where he talked about the, the geographical location and how strategic it was for so many trades and industries. And so the people in Corinth are, are, are very blessed materially, and that included the church. Uh, their trial was not poverty and persecution. It was actually prosperity. Prosperity can be uh, just as bad, if not a worse trial of faith, uh, than poverty can. Uh, because it, it sees, uh, when, when we seize onto our wealth, uh, we're, we're comfortable and we forget our need for God, right? And so God can test us just as well in poverty as he can in riches. And that's why Paul gives this as a test to them to see, will, will they in all their, 
in all their prosperity and given their desire to be popular and well-liked in their culture because that's sort of what Corinth is all about. It's the cultural elites in the urban metropolitan area and they want to be well-liked. That's why they're so much in danger of falling into the sexual morality and the cult worship and the idolatries because it's what their culture is about and they want to be liked by the culture. And Paul says, we're going to test your faith. Are you willing to give that which is so important in your culture uh, to others whom you have no blood relationship really with? We're talking about a Gentile church raising money to send off to Jerusalem uh, for Jewish people there. Uh, that's a, a very countercultural thing to do. We should ask ourselves, why, why, why do we give? Is it because we have given ourselves to God? Is it because we have this, this affection for his people? Uh, are we giving just for ourselves? One of the things I really appreciate about Second Presbyterian Church is we, we have a growing budget, um, but with that growing budget, we have a growing proportion of that budget that is not given just for our own ministries and our own programs. Uh, we've been laboring to the end of having 20% of our budget go to global missions, and we're pretty close. I think the number for next year is like 17 point something percent. Uh, that's, that's pretty good. For most churches our size, that number is a lot lower. And so as we're laboring to, to, to give generously, uh, let's labor not just to give generously back to ourselves for the things that benefit us, right? New facilities are good and fine. Having nice music is great. Uh, having good food and things like that, you know, all, nothing wrong with any of that. But are we giving in a way that we expect nothing in return for it? I think of the, uh, the deacon's fund that we take up and the offering uh, during the Lord's Supper, and how that meets the material needs of uh, the poor uh, and uh, the, the, the needy uh, among our own congregation and in our own community. We think of things like the Widows Fund that meets the needs of people who you've probably never even met because they've been widows for so long and shut in. Um, giving should not be something we give to the church because we know we're going to get some benefit immediately back to ourselves. Well, we need to wrap up. Um, Paul gives the, the the last part of this chapter is really... Uh, commendation to Titus, uh, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, for not only he accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going uh, to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches, his preaching of the gospel, and not only that, but he has appointed, uh, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry our, out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For our aim is that, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the sight, Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And so, um, Paul's describing uh, who they're sending uh, with this letter that he's writing, and they're going to be uh, there to administer the gift. And there's a variety of details here. Let me just um, highlight a few. Uh, we see that the, the heart of Titus growing in his love for this congregation that Paul had sent him for the first time. Uh, and I've talked uh, previously about the, the, the relationship that ministers ought to have with the congregation. Titus is very eager for this work. Uh, he, we're told he, uh, he accepted our appeal and being very earnest he, in going. He, he's doing it of his own accord. He has a, has a desire to do this work. And they're going to send this guy, we don't know his name, a uh, brother who's famous among the churches for his preaching. A lot of people think that's uh, Barnabas, perhaps, because he sort of has that reputation. But he's not named. It's not really the point. 
Um, what is the point, I think, is the way in which the apostles organize the administration of this gift. Notice uh, that uh, this individual who's famous for preaching in verse 19, not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. And so it's very important we realize that the administration of these things uh, is, is something that the, the congregation has designated certain individuals to be a part of. Uh, it's not really talking about deacons per se, but it is a good principle of, of polity that we should take notice of, uh, that uh, the administration of the financial gifts of the church are administered by men who have been chosen as trustworthy by the congregation themselves. And so that's one reason, for instance, that we have deacons, and uh, especially deacons, they are nominated and trained and then ultimately elected. Uh, it wasn't just the apostles appointing uh, people for themselves uh, to do this, but they want to do everything in a way that is um, blameless, uh, not just in the Lord's sight, uh, but in the sight of man. So there are uh, direct principles given in Scripture for how we govern the church, but there's also some just common sense practical stuff, one of which is you need trustworthy men to administer the, the gifts of the church financially, and that's best done by men who have been chosen from amongst the congregation themselves. We see that principle all over Scripture. It's here. It's in the formation of the diaconate at the beginning of Acts. Uh, that's something that the, the, the apostles highlighting here. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker on your behalf, benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches of the the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So give proof. What does that mean? It means they're coming with this letter uh, to, to take up the gift, which they had already discussed doing, and for one reason or another, they had stopped taking up, uh, and now they are to finish that work which they started uh, by giving their gifts, which they prepared uh, to Titus and these others, other men so that they can bring them back to Jerusalem. That's what Paul is concluding with here. Uh, he wants them to evidence generosity, which itself is a proof of the spiritual work of, of God in their lives. Uh, that's what he's looking for. Let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your Holy Spirit, uh, for uh, the generosity of Christ who was made uh, poor for our sakes, Lord. We thank you that though he was rich, he laid down his riches and became poor, uh, that we might be rich in him. We thank you for all the benefits of justification and sanctification and glorification. We thank you for uh, adoption as sons. We thank you for all the blessings that we have in Christ as the, as the chief example of generosity and of your grace. We thank you for the example of the church in Macedonia and the church in Corinth as they would be obedient to this exhortation. And I pray, Lord, that you would put it on our hearts as we look to Christ, as we look to these other churches, that we would uh, receive the same grace uh, which you gave them, uh, a grace that works generosity in our hearts to give generously and proportionally and with a very willing and eager heart that we would beg uh, to be able to participate and this sort of work, the work of your church, to meet the needs of your saints in various places, materially and spiritually, Lord. Would you do so for your own glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.